Check, 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 check. All right, this sounds good. Let's go ahead and get started. The music fades out and I will say hello and I will start this podcast lecture off with a very, very, very fast review. I'm going to run through stuff at a really, really rapid clip here because you have heard all this stuff before and at this point you probably actually understand it pretty well so I won't need to waste time explaining this stuff a whole bunch. Point number one, we all have an unconscious and the unconscious is a part of us with a mind of its own. Point number two, Traumatic stuff cannot be erased, but it can be defensively put into the unconscious. It can be taken out of circulation, you could say, right? Out of the uh, conscious or the, the pre-conscious, and it can be put then into the unconscious. When that occurs, when something is taken out of circulation, when it's taken out of our consciousness and it's put into the unconscious, it's not destroyed. It's still there. And kind of putting that thing in the unconscious, that's called repression. Point number three. When repression happens, the traumatic thing, whatever it is, is still present. It's still there, but it's not present in the way that a lot of other things are present in our lives. Like there's a lot of things that we can think about right now. We can consciously think about like what we want for dinner. We can consciously think about what we want to do next week and all that stuff that's conscious. Unconscious stuff is still in us, but we can't think about it. We can't talk about it because it's unconscious which means that it's sort of like a ghost. A ghost is something which is there, but not there, right? A ghost can walk through walls. It's, it's like present, but usually when there's a ghost, like in a movie or something like that, people can't directly engage with the ghost. So if a ghost is there kind of trying to influence things and it's making weird haunty stuff happen and people are like, oh my gosh, why is that weird haunty stuff happening? That's what repressed content kind of turns into, or at least that's, that's my claim. Point number four. One of the things that often gets repressed is desire, especially desire that is traumatic. Things that we want, but we cannot admit to ourselves that we want these things. Because if we were to admit that we want these things, we could not tell ourselves that we are nice people. And that makes them traumatic and those, those kinds of desires get repressed. Point number five, the ghost traumas that are in our unconscious, they often lead us to do things that just don't make sense. They lead to us saying things, forgetting things, doing things. And after we do them, we're like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? That makes no sense. I, d I didn't want what happened there to happen. And, and consciously, it's correct. We didn't want that to happen. But unconsciously, we, we did. That's one of those sorts of impacts of having these ghosts haunt us. That's the impact of having repressed content, unconscious content kind of interfere in our lives. Point number six drive objects. This is one of the things I spoke about in podcast lecture number three. Uh, this is, Drive objects are things that we go after. And even though a lot of times we shouldn't go after them, even though we consciously know it's a bad idea to go after them, we can't seem to help ourselves. We do it anyways. Uh, drive objects are one of those things that don't make sense. And they are tied to uh, repressed unconscious desires. Point number seven this is what I talked about in podcast lecture number four, the one right before this one. 
uh, transference, I kind of tried to explain it's not just being reminded of somebody and being able to go like, oh, this person reminds me of uh, my mom. And so that's why I treat this person the way that I treat my mom. If, if you're remi- people remind you of other people all the time, that happens, but that's not transference. Transference is an unconscious process where we transfer in a power dynamic from a previous relationship into our current relationship. Usually what that means is that we assume unconsciously without knowing that we're doing it, that the person who we are talking to and transferring onto, that this person has the ability to give us something that we want. And therefore, since we think they have the ability to give us something that we want, we treat them as if uh, they, we act the right way. If we, if we give them what they want, they will give us what, what we want. And that's kind of how transference plays out in clinical relationships and in other relationships for that matter. So that's the review. Thanks for listening to that. Let me tell you about what we're going to do today. Today's podcast lecture is going to cover some new stuff and kind of revisit some old stuff too. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to talk about the differences between pleasure and enjoyment or satisfaction. Uh, the differences between pleasure and satisfaction, you could say that too. And how the, those two terms, pleasure and enjoyment, relate to the terms instincts and drives. And as I do this, I'll try to build a little bit more on the some of the stuff that I've already said and some of the stuff that you've already read about drives. And the other thing that we're going to do today is talk about a shift in Freud's thinking. The shift that we're going to be covering is a shift from what was called the topographical model of the mind, where the mind is made up of the conscious, the pre-conscious, and the unconscious. And the shift will be to the structural model of the mind, where the mind is made up of the id, the ego, and the superego. So that's the plan. Pleasure versus enjoyment. That's going to get tied to instincts versus drives. And after that, we're going to talk about the shift from the topographical model to the structural model. So let's do some transition music. And when we come back, we'll dive right in. And we are back. So to start off this segment of the podcast lecture, I'm going to try to make something clear. But to do this, I'm going to need to tell you about some psychoanalytic history involving what I think is a real significant error in the translation that was made from uh, Freud's original German when he, he wrote in German. And his writing was taken from that original German and translated into English. And when that happened at first, I think that there was an error that was made. So I'll start off by telling you about that. And from there, we're going to jump into the the difference between instincts and drive. So here's the, the error. When Freud wrote in German, he used two words somewhat regularly. The first word he would use was the word instinct. Now, if you read the word instinct in German, it looks exactly the same way as it does in English, except instead of there being a C, there's a K. Uh, The other word that uh, that that Freud used when he wrote in German was the word drive, which in German is Triebe, uh, which is T-R-I-E-B. And because Freud used these two words, and he used them both, right? 
I think, and, and a lot of other people besides me, by the way, think that that's because he saw these two things as separate. They were different. They weren't the same. They were different phenomenon. So let's start with instincts. According to the way that Freud used the word, instincts were things that our bodies did naturally. Our bodies did not need to be taught to instinctively do a lot of the stuff that they instinctively do. Let's talk about some examples of this. Uh, From the first time that a human infant is born, it knows its body knows how to take in milk, uh, you know, breast milk or formula or something like that. And its body will extract the necessary nutrients from that milk. And it will then use those nutrients to do things like build tissues and it will take all the stuff that isn't needed and it will convert that into waste, which the baby will get rid of through urinating and defecating. And then we continue to do that throughout our whole lives. That's something our body instinctively knows how to do. Our body knows instinctively to go to sleep. And when we sleep, our body does a whole bunch of stuff instinctively. It slows certain things down and it does a bunch of repair work. All that stuff happens instinctively. Our body knows to send us hunger signals and tired signals. When we get really hot, our body knows to sweat. When we get really cold, our body knows to shiver. No one needs to teach it how to do those things. It just does it automagically because all of that stuff are examples of instincts. Instincts, according to Freud, are things that when we that help keep our bodies alive. That's what they do. So instincts are these really, really super important things, right? They help keep our bodies alive. Uh, let's think of some other just quick examples of, well, let me, let me back up here. Let's not do some examples. Let's also make a tie here. In addition to keeping our body alive, when we heed our instincts, another thing that happens is we get this sensation called pleasure. Doing what we instinctively, what our bodies instinctively want to do makes the body feel good. Uh, here's where I'll give you some examples. When I wake up in the morning, one of the things that I do, I don't think about this. It just kind of happens as I stretch, right? That is something that feels nice when I do it. That is because my body instinctively knows that that's a good thing to do to kind of start, get the muscles moving and the blood circulating and, and all that stuff. That that's actually a, a good idea. It helps keep the body healthy. Stretching is good for us. When I stretch in the morning, it, it feels nice and I, I feel pleasure. Um, uh, if you've ever been in a situation where you were really tired and you took a nap and then you woke up and you felt refreshed. That's another good example of listening to your instincts and getting pleasure. Uh, Another one I would say is laughing, right? Sometimes if you're, you're doing something which is fun or you hear something that you think is amusing, you'll laugh and laughing feels nice. It encourages us to continue to do different things that are probably, you know, good uh, in a lot of ways, right? Like they, you know, be social, go out, do fun things, that sort of stuff. All this stuff is instincts. Now, Freud said that both human beings and animals have instincts. That's something which is a, a common thing kind of across a lot of different animal species. Humans happen to be one species that has instincts. And uh, when a- animals, including humans, do what their instincts instruct them to do, they get their needs met. And getting their needs met makes them feel good. That's the basic claim around instincts. Now, what I want to do here before I move into drives is I want to uh, make a quick claim here. I want, or not a claim, I want you to imagine something. I'm going to try to get you to imagine something. What I want you to try to imagine is a life where all of your instinctive needs are met. You have the amount of sleep that you need, but that's it. 
just the amount that you need. You have the amount of food. You have the caloric intake that you need, but no, no extra, right? Just what you need. You have um, the clothes that you need. We'll say, even though clothes aren't really a good example of instinct, but let's just roll with this for a second here. Let's just imagine you have the clothes that you need, but no, not more than that. Just the stuff that you need, not more, so on and so forth. Now, if you're imagining this the same way that I'm imagining this, what you're imagining is a kind of life that you probably wouldn't want to have. Would it be better than being dead? Yeah, it probably would, but it wouldn't be any fun at all, right? So animals, a lot of times that are not human beings, they live their lives in complete accordance with their instincts, which means that they try to get their needs met, but they don't take things further than that. They don't, they don't try to, to get more than they need. They try to get what they need. And after they get what they need, they kind of chill out more or less, right? Human beings are the exception to this is what Freud said, because unlike animals, human beings had these things called drives. And this is where the idea of drive comes in. And again, my claim here is that drives are different than instincts. How so? Here's how. Drives are kind of like instincts that have gone off the rails. Uh, a drive is a demand to get more than what we need. It is a demand to get something that brings us not necessarily pleasure, but a different thing, something called enjoyment. What's the difference here? So pleasure, like I was just saying, is tied to getting your needs met. If something meets your needs, it gives you pleasure. Enjoyment comes in when something not only meets your needs, but gives you extra, gives you a surplus, gives you more than you need. When you have that, that leads to enjoyment. Drives are things that are excessive. Instincts are not excessive. Drives are. Drives are things that are aimed at getting things or experiences that are in excess of what it is that we need. Drives want us to have more. They want us to have a surplus. They want us to have extra things and stuff and experiences that we don't need, but man, having them is a lot of fun. That's how drives work. And because drives work in this way, because they try to get more than we need, because they are so excessive, the things that our drives are going after, the things that they're aiming at, the things that they're trying to acquire, a lot of times, in fact, I would say probably all of the time, uh, those things are a little bit off limits. Like you could always look at what the drives are trying to acquire. You could look at your drives or the drives of somebody else. And you could realistically say, huh, look at that. I'm trying to get something that I don't need. Oh, look at that. That person over there, they're trying to get something they don't need. And a lot of times when we see people doing that, when we see ourselves doing that, we have a judgment and the judgment isn't always a very good one. We go, oh, that person's greedy. Oh, that person shouldn't be doing that. That, that That's unnecessary. Why? You know, we don't like it when people do that. But that's the way that drives function. So to try to tie all of this stuff together here, like one more time here, instincts, they aim at keeping us alive by helping us get what we need to stay alive. But once they get what they need, they're good. They, they're satisfied. They're fine. Drives are things that aim at things that we enjoy and things that we enjoy, according to the way that I'm describing them here, are things that are extra, things that we don't need, but we like having them. And they're things that are kind of off limits. So getting them is a little bit transgressive. 
Now, let me bounce back to this translation error here. The original translator, the person who was translating Freud from German into English, for some reason that I don't know, decided instead of using these two different terms, they just decided to use the word instinct and they just got rid of the word drive. So whenever the word instinct showed up in Freud, that got translated as instinct, no surprise. But whenever the word drive showed up, that also got translated into the term instinct. And this is crazy because there's, they're obviously such different things. And uh, I didn't know this when I started reading Freud. It wasn't until I got pretty deep into trying to understand what Freud was saying. And I, I was confused by this because when I was reading Freud in English, sometimes the word instinct would show up and it seemed like it was talking about these very normal and natural biological functions. And other times instincts seemed to be talking about this stuff that was not biological functions, but was like people trying to gain social capital and money and a whole bunch of other non-natural stuff. And it was very confusing. And it wasn't until I kind of like uh, tried to understand what was going on here. Did Freud just change his mind about how he thought about instincts that I, I discovered people, many, many people had written about this translation error and pointed it out. And so I wanted to point it out to you all because I think it's an important thing for you to know. And in addition to that, I think it helps us start to understand the difference between our instincts, our biological hardwired instincts, which give us pleasure, and our drives, which are these other things that give us enjoyment. I, I think understanding this difference is an important thing for understanding a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about as we continue to move through this class. So I hope that I've made this at least somewhat clear to you. That would be good. Uh, if I haven't, you know, when we meet as a class, please, please, please tell me it's not clear so that I can try to explain it in a different way that makes it more clear. That would be awesome. Uh, but now that I've told you that, what I'm going to do again is a bit of a shift here. We're going to do some more transition music. And when we come back, we will start to talk about another shift in Freud's thinking, the shift from the topographical model of the mind to the structural model of the mind. Okay, so as we move into this third part of the podcast lecture, what I want to do is lay out a bit of a timeline for you. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of come back to that timeline. and I'm going to fill in a bunch of it. So for the sake of this lecture, I'm going to divide Freud's work up into three areas. His early work, which we might think of as kind of like his demo tape, if you like. Uh, that's kind of how I think of it. Then we're going to move from that into the topographical period and from that into the, the structural period. So Freud's early work, I kind of ballpark it is starting around the year 1887. And I think it lasts until about the year 1896, right? So uh, it's a, a decent period of time here. During this period, what Freud starts to do is he starts to correspond with another doctor, this guy named Wilhelm Fleiss, who was, I, I think... Uh, an ENT, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And as he's uh, kind of writing these letters to, to Fleece, who's a friend of his, Freud is kind of explaining to Fleece these ideas that he has about this thing called the unconscious and about repression. And, and 
a bunch of other stuff too. He's, he's working out the ideas by telling a friend about them. Uh, another really big uh, thing from this period is a, a, the work that Freud did with a guy named Joseph Brewer, uh, which is called Studies in Hysteria. And what Freud was really concerned with in this early period of his work is something called the seduction model. And the seduction model kind of goes like this. There's a lot of people who have been seduced and who were sexually traumatized, sexually abused by people, oftentimes people who were their family members. And uh, that, that uh, when that happened, Freud's original theory was that that was a really traumatic thing to have happen. And as a result, people repressed those experiences. But as I said early on in the review and in previous podcast lectures, when something is repressed, it's not like it didn't happen. It's not like it's erased. It's not like it's gone. And so Freud thought that there was all of this kind of um, leftover residual trauma that had been repressed and that that was coming out in the form of these different physical symptoms that people couldn't explain. Now, Freud, uh, at first, for a while, he thought that anytime somebody had like some weird sort of physical symptom that was unexplainable, that like medical doctors couldn't explain, that that was tied to some sort of sexual abuse that they had repressed. And that was the seduction model. I mean, that's a pretty simplistic way of saying it. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that kind of helps you understand it, I hope. Uh, so that was for one of Freud's original ideas. And after a while of thinking that, uh, he moved away from that idea. Now, some people think that that was a bad idea on his part, that it was bad for him to move away from the seduction theory, that it was him kind of uh, caving to social pressure. Because when, when he postulated this theory, people weren't like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Or they weren't like, oh, oh my gosh, you're, you're clearly onto something. They were like, dude, you're, your mind is sick. You're saying people are doing what? You're, you're perverted. You're gross. You're awful. Don't say those. They were, were furious that Freud was suggesting these things. So some people think that Freud reacted to that fury by moving away from this idea. That's not my personal opinion. My personal opinion is that Freud, when he moved away from it, he didn't say that it, it never happened. He recognized that this happened and probably happened a lot more often than people are willing to admit, but that that wasn't the only thing that would cause like weird and unexplained stuff to happen in a person's life, that people can have weird and unexplained symptoms and stuff pop up in their lives that are not necessarily tied to sexual abuse. There's other things that can become repressed in addition to sexual abuse. And those additional things can then kind of come in to our lives and haunt us in a ghostly way that I've described before. All right. So that's the early work, which is from 1887 thereabouts till about 1896. So then we move into the next phase. And this is the phase, which is the, the phase of the topographical model. And this phase lasts from roughly 1896, um, 97 till about 1920-ish. And so during this period, Freud published a lot of really interesting papers and some actually fairly sizable books like The Psychopathology of Everyday Life and The Interpretation of Dreams. And in 1920, he publishes the work that I happen to believe is sort of like the most amazing thing that he did. And that's Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Uh, in that book, he, that's where he really starts to lay out the thing that I was talking about in the previous section, this idea that there's this thing called the pleasure principle that human beings are subjected to. And the pleasure principle effectively is like, get pleasure, you know, do things that bring you pleasure. That's the, the pleasure principle. That means like eat food when you need to eat food, sleep when you need to sleep, you know, live a life that brings your body lots of pleasure. That that's the pleasure principle. And Freud said, in 1920, when he wrote Beyond the Pleasure Principle, that human beings actually have drives and that drives go beyond 
the pleasure principle. They don't just stop with getting us the pleasure that we want. They go beyond that and try to acquire, you know, all that excessive stuff that we don't need, but we really have a lot of fun when we get it, right? So that's what happens there. So let me talk to you a little bit about the topographical model of the mind here. So a lot of times when I talk to people about Freud, one of the things that I find they're somewhat familiar with is the topographical model of the mind as represented by an iceberg. So there was a a point where Freud kind of said uh, the human mind is sort of like an iceberg. And that means that you have your conscious mind, which is that little bit of the iceberg, which is poking out of the water that you can see. That's your conscious mind. But then underneath the water is this huge, massive thing that would be your pre-conscious and your unconscious mind that is underneath the water. Um, maybe the pre-conscious would be kind of the stuff which is right at the barrier, right at the, the top of the water, and the unconscious would be the stuff that, that's deeper down. The more deep down into the water you got, the more deep down into the unconscious you got. That was the kind of metaphor he used. Another metaphor he also used, which people are a lot of times less familiar with, is the metaphor of uh, a house. So Freud would say, you know, if you're wherever you are listening to this right now, if you're, I'm going to, if you're in a house, you might be in your car or something like that, but let's just say you were in a house. Imagine yourself in a house. If you're not in one, uh, there's going to be a room that you're in. That room would be your conscious mind in, in this room. There's all sorts of things that you can like reach out and grab. You can look at them. You can consider them. You can think about them, so on and so forth. Then right outside this room, let's say there's a hallway, that hallway represents your what, what Freud called your pre-conscious. It's, it's a place where there's all sorts of stuff that you're not actively thinking about, but you can pull it out of your pre-conscious into your consciousness without too much difficulty. I'll give you an example of this. What I would like you to do is to think about your first day of kindergarten. Now, my guess is that before I said that, you were not thinking about your first day of kindergarten. And when I said that, you probably had some sort of a memory come to your mind that was taking something from your pre-conscious and bringing it into your consciousness. It was, it was available to you. It's just not something you were thinking about. Uh, and, but you can think about it. It's, it. All I have to do is ask you to think about it and you can pull it from your pre-conscious into your consciousness. Uh, maybe a, a less extreme example would be uh, think about what you had for dinner last night. Okay. That's again, taking something from your pre-conscious and bringing it into your consciousness. Uh, and then your unconscious would be the stuff which is, you know, imagine going down the stairs into the basement and imagine that this basement has actually a secret door that nobody knows about. And if you open that door, it opens up into this gigantic kind of like cave structure thing um, that's super massive and no one even knows that it's there. That would would be your unconscious. That's another way of thinking about it. So all of this is called the topographic model because it uses kind of topography, right? It, It describes things by saying like, here's these spatial objects that you can use to sort of understand the differences between the conscious mind, the pre-conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And this was the dominant model of thought that, you know, kind of was operating in Freud's writing and his thinking until about the year 1920. In the year 1920, that's when he writes that awesome book that I told you about beyond the pleasure principle, which is he actually, he doesn't just talk about things that go beyond the pleasure principle. He talks about some other really gnarly stuff in that book. And it's just so cool. And I want to talk about it, but it's not that important for what we're talking about now. So I'm just going to pause that for a minute. Maybe 
at some point in the future, I'll talk about it. Or if you want to ask me about it in class, feel free and I'll be able to tell you more about beyond the pleasure principle. But that, that represents kind of the end of that period of time. And that brings us into the third period of Freud's thinking, which is the structural period. And this period lasts until about 1921-ish, till Freud's death in 1939. Now, let me point out a really important thing here. At the time that Freud wrote Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he wrote that in the aftermath of World War I, which was a terrible war, which really decimated Europe, and Freud lived through that. And then he also was witnessing, you know, in the aftermath of World War I, the, the rise of the Nazi party was happening too. So he was witnessing that. And he was a Jewish man who was living in Vienna, Austria, as the Nazis were coming to power. Not a good place to be when the Nazis are coming to power. Definitely not if you're Jewish, right? So Freud was experiencing during this time kind of like a lot of the worst things that human beings can, can be. He was seeing a lot of war and violence. He was seeing a lot of uh, anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, so on and so forth. He's witnessing that and it's turned like all the way up to 11. And as he's witnessing that, it, it's having an impact on his thinking. And he kind of moves away from one way of thinking and kind of moves into another way of thinking. He moves away from the topographical model, moves away from the idea of the drive and kind of starts to move into this new way of thinking, which is the structural model, which lasts from about 1921 till about 1939. The publication that I see as kind of the start of the structural model is something which is called Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego. And in that book, what Freud starts to talk about is the way that human beings go about establishing this thing called an ego. And when Freud wrote about the ego, another word we could use for that is identity. You know, Freud said that people create an identity. It's not something that you have from the time you're born. It's something that gets created as you go through your life. And then after he wrote that, shortly after writing Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego, where he analyzes the impact of the society that you live in on the formation of your identity, he writes after that the ego and the id. And that's what really kind of super kicks off this period known as the structural period. So in this period, Freud goes from talking about the unconscious, the preconscious, and the conscious to the id, the ego, and the superego. Now here's another quick translation story here. Freud and all of his writings, like if you look at Freud's writing in German, you never see the word id, ego, or superego. What you see are the terms das is, which would in English, a, a true translation of that would be the it, uh, das I, um, or das S, which would be the I, uh, as in the capital letter I, as in like I went to the store. And um, I actually don't remember how to say this in German. I apologize, but the, the term superego doesn't occur, but a term that means the ideal version of ourself, the ideal I is what you see there. Um, so Freud made this shift. Now, when he was being translated into English, the translator thought, you know what? If I translate, this is just the capital letter I, it's going to be way too confusing. I need to come up with a different thing um, because there's so many sentences in English that have the word I. I think this, I went there, I want that, so on and so forth. So he wanted there to be sort of like another word that could be used is, is like more like a concept. And so that's where the, the Latin word ego uh, comes in. The, the word ego in Latin means I. 
And so there, this was the, the translation sort of choice that was made. But let's talk about these three parts of ourselves here for a moment. Um, the id. The id is a part of us that is outside of our social identity. It is a wild part of us. And when I say outside, what I mean is that the id is literally outside of all of the normal ways that we see ourselves and other people. It is outside of all of those classifications, right? The, so we might classify people as male or female. We might classify people as old or young. We might classify them as polite or rude. The id is actually something which is outside all of these different distinctions and classifications. It is a wild part of us that is rather unpredictable and has pretty much no concern for social constructs, social customs, social normativity, that sort of stuff. It is concerned with whatever it is it happens to want in whatever moment it finds itself. So the id, sometimes I think it's helpful for me anyways to think of it this way. What I want you to do is I want you to imagine like a tiger or a lion in the wild. Now tigers and lions in the wild, a lot of times what they do is they just kind of like lie in the sun and sleep. They're not really all that active. And the id is kind of similar to that. I think a lot of times the id is just kind of hanging out, not doing much. But there are times where a wild lion or tiger will, you know, perk up and it, when it wants to do something, it's going to do the thing it wants to do, right? There's no like reasoning with it. You can't like logically um, say to the tiger, hey, tiger, hey, lion, that thing that you're going to do, you shouldn't do it because there's actually like a big game hunter. And if you chase that zebra, you're likely to get shot. I mean, you, you could say all those things, but the tiger, the lion, it's not going to care. It doesn't even hear you, right? It just goes and does whatever it wants to do. That's kind of like the way that the it is for us. It's something which is, it just doesn't fit in to all the social stuff that, that humans normally do, which doesn't mean that it's always up to no good. It just means that it's this kind of like wild part of us that does what it wants. And sometimes what it wants to do is just chill out and do nothing. And other times it wants to do something else like um, uh, have sex or eat a donut. I don't know, something like that. Uh, which brings us to the ego. The ego is, as I said earlier, the Latin word for I. It is the I that does things like I think that psychoanalysis is cool. I like to read Freud. Uh, in those sentences, there's the I. That's the ego. The ego is our identity. It is the version of ourselves that we try to construct over time that is consistent, that is whole, that is complete, that can make sense to other people and to ourselves for that matter. That is what the ego is. I'm going to say it again because I think it's super important. The ego is this thing that we make. It's constructed. We're not born with it. And it is our attempt to create a version of ourselves that exists in a society, uh, a network with other human beings, and we try to make this part of ourselves consistent, whole, complete. We try to make it fit in to our society in some way, shape, or form. Now, it doesn't mean that we always try to get along with everybody in our society. It, it, the ego will pick and choose like who its friends and enemies are. But uh, it, it, there's an attempt to behave in ways that will gain the social approval of at least some of the people in our society. That's the ego. You could think of ego as identity, the way that you try to present yourself to the world. Which brings me to superego. Now, when I talk about this, I want to make something abundantly clear right away. A lot of times when people, when I ask people to describe what they think these things are, when they get to the superego, one of the things that I would hear a lot 
is that the superego is like your conscience, i.e. the angel on your shoulder telling you to do good things and avoid doing bad things. That is wrong. That is not correct. It's not even remotely correct. That is not what the superego is. Here's what the superego is. The superego is your internalized version of authority. As we go through life, we all have an encounter, many encounters in fact, with authority figures. Authority figures will reward us and punish us for doing different things. Based on how they reward us or punish us, we start to associate certain things with pleasurable experiences and certain things with unpleasurable experiences. And, and over time, what happens is there's this effect. This is one of the things behaviorists are really into the, the superego, even though I don't think they'd use this term. I think they, they are into it. Um, what happens is, is you start to have this idea that doing these things are good because when you do them, good things happen to you and doing these other things, those things are bad and you know they're bad because bad things happen to you. So what makes this different from the angel on your shoulder thing? Well, when people think of the angel on your shoulder, I think what they are imagining is something which is actually like um, a sort of like moral authority that all people have in common. And that's that's what's wrong about it. The superego, like my superego and your superego could be totally different. If you have somebody who grows up in an area where there is very little yelling, for example, uh, their superego is going to say you shouldn't yell Yelling is bad. It's rude. It's uncommon. When you do it, you draw undue attention to yourself. Don't yell. Yelling is bad. If, an, if another person grows up in a family or an environment where yelling is like really normal and natural and kind of common, uh, they're not going to care, right? Their superego is not going to have any trouble with yelling. And this is just because they have different experiences of authority, right? One person, the authority figures kind of sent this message of don't yell. And in situation number two, the authority figures didn't care about yelling and maybe even endorsed yelling. And this resulted in the formation of different superegos. So that's the first thing I want to say about it. The second thing I want to say about the superego is that the superego is a total jerk face. It's awful. Having a superego sucks because it is a part of you that judges. It judges you. It judges other people. It's extremely, totally, massively ultra judgmental. It says this is right. That is wrong. This is ethical. That is unethical. This is good. That is bad. So on and so forth. Nobody wants to hang out with your superego. Not even you. All right. Guarantee it because your superego, it would be like hanging out with the most judgmental person in the world who just kind of constantly calls out all of the different flaws that you have. It tells you about all of the things that you're not doing good enough. It tells you about all of the times where you're not putting in enough effort. It tells you about all of the things that uh, you really should care more about, but you, but you're, you don't, no one wants that, but we all have it. It's something that we all have to deal with. Okay. So again, not the angel on your shoulder. So if you're thinking of it that way, I would ask, I mean, you can still think of it that way. I can't control what you think, but I think that's wrong. Think of it instead of your internalized version of authority. Um, one more thing about this. So to kind of illustrate the point here, uh, I mentioned that Freud, you know, was living in Austria as the Nazis were coming to power. So I'm going to use the Nazis as an example here. The Nazi superego would have said to people, you know, that Jews are awful things and that it is okay to treat them badly, that it is in fact good to treat Jews badly. And uh, if you take a look at what happened during World War II, you can see that many people did that. And that was because the authority figure 
was telling them to do that. And that's the thing that they internalized. Superego is demanding, ju judgmental, total jerk face. No one wants to hang out with it. So now that I've explained that, I'm going to do one more bit of transition. And when we come back, I'm going to talk about one more idea, which is called the economic model. Stay tuned. All right, so here we are, final part of the podcast lecture. I know that this one's been a little bit long, so I'm going to try to go through this last segment somewhat quickly. And as always, if you know I go through it too quickly and you have questions about this or really any of the things that you read for this week, whatever, um, please come to class with those questions. It really would be my pleasure to answer them. So the economic model. This is another thing that kind of comes up, and it fits in nicely with the structural model of the mind. At least I think that it does. So what I'm going to try to do is explain, in my own words, what the economic model is. And also, in my own words, try to explain how I think that fits into the structural model of the mind that Freud postulates. So here's my attempt at a super simplistic description of the economic model. If we think of us, our, our body and our mind, if you, because I, I, I'm going to ask that you kind of see those two things, not as separate things, but as one thing, the mind, body, the body, mind, uh, think of your body, your mind as a system and contained within that system, there is a finite amount of energy. When I say finite, what that means is that it is not limitless. You do not have a limitless amount of energy in your mind or your body right now. Now, the amount of energy that you have in your mind and your body, it does fluctuate. It does change. But at any given moment, there is only so much energy that you have. And that, again, that, that amount, it does fluctuate throughout your day, throughout the week, throughout the months, throughout the years. It doesn't, it doesn't stay the same. It goes up, it goes down. But at any given moment, there is a measurement of energy. We don't know how to measure this exactly. We don't have a way to do this. But there, the theory suggests that there is a specific amount of energy available to you at any given moment. Now, whenever we're going through our lives, we're doing lots of stuff. So right now you're listening to this. You might be doing other things too. Let's just say that you're in your car and you're driving. For example, you're in your car, you're driving, you're listening to this. So one of the things that's happening is you're, I hope, trying to pay attention to what I'm saying and you're thinking about it. That's taking energy. It's paying, you're, you're paying attention, i.e. paying means taking energy away. Cognitive energy is going into listening to my words and trying to understand them. Uh, you're also paying attention, I hope, to the road, the traffic around you, so on and so forth. That's taking energy too. Uh, at the same time, your body's doing a whole bunch of things that you're unaware of. It's probably digesting some food. It's breathing. All of those things are taking energy. And there's a bunch of other stuff that I could get into, but I'm sure that you get the point. At any given moment, there's all sorts of things that are happening that are pulling from the available amount of energy you have within your mind-body system. Now, there's other things that we can do that deposit energy into our mind-body system. Eating, for example, uh, is something that, that gives us energy. Uh, digesting the food takes energy, but putting the, the food in, that usually gives us energy. Resting gives us energy. Doing things that um, uh, are, are generally good for our bodies. Th those things tend to deposit energy. Having a really enjoyable conversation can deposit energy. Having a very stressful conversation can take energy away. So I hope that you understand that. 
at any given point in your mind body system, there's a certain amount of energy. Some things are taking energy away, withdrawing sort of, and other things are depositing energy into that system. Now, as we go through our day, most people um, have throughout their day, more things taking energy than they do have things putting energy in. And then at night we sleep and when we sleep, there's sleep. There's a really big kind of like battery energy recharge thing that tends to occur. Um, next point that I want to make here. One of the things which is always going on all the time, and we're not really that aware of it, but it is always happening. Whenever we're uh, out in the world and we're awake and we're engaging with other people, even if we're not engaging with other people, we're trying to not freak out. We're always trying to not freak out. We're always trying to hold ourselves together. We're always trying to behave in ways that would not get us in trouble. That's something that your ego does. Your ego, as I, I said this in an earlier part of this podcast lecture, is a part of you. It's your, your social identity. It's the way that you present yourself to the world. Presenting yourself to the world as a person who's not a crazy person, as a person who has you know their life together, who's not a maniac, um, this actually takes energy. It takes energy to do this. Now, most of the time, I hope, again, doing a lot of hoping today, I guess, in this podcast lecture, I hope that you have enough energy to do this rather easily. But there are going to be times in, in all of our lives, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts, where that hasn't been easy. There have been times in our lives where we have had, you know, maybe we had a headache, we were sick, uh, we hadn't eaten in a long time, and we were doing something that wasn't easy, that, that we were around people who were annoying us. In those instances, there's a massive amount of energy being taken out of our system. And what can happen, and it probably has happened to all of us at some point, is we might kind of freak out. We might lose our grip on ourselves. We might not be able to hold it ourselves together anymore. And in those instances, what happens is people usually do something like they break down and start crying. Um, they have a temper tantrum. They, they, they do something crazy and erratic because they don't have the energy to, that they need to stop themselves from doing the crazy erratic thing. A lot of times in our lives, we're going to be engaging with other people, which is oftentimes a very difficult thing. And as we engage with people, we might feel annoyed. We might feel frustrated, so on and so forth. But even if we feel that, we're not going to freak out. And that's because we have enough energy in the system to prevent ourselves from freaking out. Our ego says, no, don't freak out. Hold yourself together. Present yourself in a way which is going to be socially responsible. When we don't have enough energy, our ego stops doing that. And at that point, something comes over us and that something kind of like takes over for a little bit. What is the thing that comes over us? Our id. Our id that I described earlier in this podcast lecture is like that wild tiger or something like that. It comes out and it does what it wants to do. If it wants to cry, it cries. If it wants to yell at somebody, it yells at somebody. If it wants to punch a hole in the wall, it tries to punch a hole in the wall, so on and so forth. Uh, that's how this works here. So again, economic model, limited amount of energy in our system at any given moment. Psychic energy is what you could call it. Uh, it makes you sound kind of like you're a member of the X-Men when, when I say it that way, but whatever. Um, some things take that energy away. Some things put that energy in. As we go through our day, there's a lot of things taking that energy out. If too much energy gets taken out, our ego, that system, which always needs energy to continue to exist in a socially appropriate way, it doesn't have the energy it needs, it breaks down for a little bit. We have a, a freak out, we have a panic attack, something like that. Uh, and then usually our ego kind of does reestablish itself fairly quickly after that. But those are those things that happen. So that's the economic model. And that is going to wrap up this podcast lecture. Only one more thing to ask you to do. This is my 
thing that I'm trying to do at the end of the podcast lectures. I want to ask you to think about something and bring that something to class to aid us in our discussions. So what I want you to think about today is which of these two models do you happen to prefer and why do you prefer it? Do you prefer the uh, more topographical model of the unconscious, preconscious, uh, conscious, or do you prefer the structural model of the, uh, the ego, the superego? The economic model fits more into that one. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer to this question. It's just which one do you prefer? Why do you think you prefer it? Be prepared to talk about that when we meet together as a class. I will see you all then. Until that time, whatever you're doing, I hope you're having fun, and I want to encourage you, please, 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 make some glorious mistakes. Take care.